Well, a lot of it has to do with grit, hard work, being able to think innovatively, knowing how to work the corporate system and just talking to people and sort of gently nudging your ideas through and working collaboratively. If you can do that, you're going to go very far. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Welcome to 2022. We have a fantastic guest lineup for this year, and I can't wait to share them with you. We are kicking off the year with Nancy Lurker, a giant in the pharmaceutical industry. She has more than 30 years of experience in both startups and Fortune 500 companies. She's an accomplished businesswoman and leader with a track record of advancing new medical therapies and implementing very successful U.S. and global drug launches. She also serves on many boards across public and private companies. Currently, she's the president and CEO of iPoint Pharmaceuticals, an ocular drug delivery company for patients with serious eye disorders. And today, she shares some secrets to her success in the industry and the leadership strategies that kept getting her promoted. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you, Nancy, for joining me this morning. Thank you very much. It's my privilege. So I thought it would be great for our uh, listener to hear your story about what brought you to where you are in your this specific career path. Yeah, so I am, I'm presently the CEO of iPoint Pharmaceuticals, which is a publicly traded ophthalmology company, probably more towards the biotech side. Um, we are drug delivery for the eye. And I will say, we believe we have the, the best in class ocular drug delivery out there today, which is not easy to do, I might add. Now, uh, actually, interesting story for some of your listeners, this company was founded probably 25 years ago, thereabouts, went public about 20 years ago. I came in five years ago. I'm not a PhD scientist. I do have an undergraduate in biology, chemistry, and an MBA, but I'm not a scientist. Um, it was founded by a brilliant scientist right out of, for those who are listening that might be in graduate school or fellows, right after his PhD graduate program from the University of Kentucky. And he founded the company because he really uh, uh, liked uh, his work in polymer technology and in particular, how that could be used to develop drug delivery for the eye. Again, obviously an extremely small organ, highly complex, not something easy to do. So it was Dr. Paul Ashton. He founded the company and um, he went out and uh, I'm not exactly 100% sure on the full trajectory, but I know he got some initial funding and then he just started bringing in uh, a board and started working on his technology. Ultimately, I think it was about 10 years after he founded it, they, the company went public. Uh, and then I came in. And part of the reason for that is sometimes, not always, sometimes it might be a bit difficult for founder scientists to take a publicly comp a trading company to that next step 
of really growth in the in the pharma industry. So that's why I was brought in to really help get this company on a growth trajectory. But I want to say something to your listeners, which is, you know, if you have, in fact, today more than ever, it's not as hard as you might seem to start to really understand how you found a company and how you get the funding and how you get the know-how. And by the way, if you don't even want to found a company, you might want to just go start working in a small biotech startup or maybe a mid-start, mid-size, or maybe it's a large company. <laughs> the Because of the internet, it is so much easier today than when I started. And uh, even though I would say the biotech pharma industry is a pretty tightly closed ecosystem, but it's only tightly closed uh, if you if, for people who want to come in at high levels because it's such a complex industry. It's not tightly closed for people who have ideas mm-hmm. or maybe you just want to go work in the lab. Um, I can g- give you an example. We've hired several um, formulation uh, PhD scientists right out of grad school just in the last couple of years because we need help further advancing our drug polymer delivery technology. And so we love to hire people right out of grad school. But, you know, part of it is just start do a little research, start to put your foot in the door with various people. And again, it's not that hard to find all of us. And um, it's I can't speak enough about this industry. It's really a very compelling and exciting area to be in right now today, especially because of what's happening on the technology front. And you can find all your, a lot of these people, individual to connect with through LinkedIn. They make it so LinkedIn much easier. Is another one, very much so. And also, you know, if if you just start to make a connection, th- for example, through you uh, and others, sometimes it's just a matter of saying, "Hey, is there somebody or a company that you know of that where my skills might fit?" And oftentimes, you can find a connection. But I would right. just really encourage people. It, it's just a it, it's. Right now, more than ever, we need scientists uh, because all these companies got founded over the last five years when there was a huge amount of capital that flowed into this industry. There mm-hmm. are companies being founded everywhere uh, in Boston and San Francisco. Yeah. So tell me more about, uh, you said that you were not a scientist PhD. Tell us about a lot of your your uh, career path, what yeah. take you and... Did you know always from the beginning that I want to be in the healthcare industry? Well, I knew I wanted to be in healthcare. So from a young age, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. So, you know, when you're young, that's usually the first thing. We, most people, kids say, oh, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a doctor. You know, they don't really fully understand right. the world. So as I, and I actually ended up in college working on my pre-med. And, um, and then I actually, I had a, very insightful professor said, look, go, go do an internship one summer with a doctor. So I literally just went down to the local doctor and said, hey, can I follow you around for the summer? And he said, sure, you can follow me around. So I did. It wasn't some big introduction somewhere. I literally just knocked on a doctor's door. Mm-hmm. And um, when I followed this doctor around, I realized I did not want to be a doctor. Now, <laughs> That's good to know early. <laughs> very good to know. But I always knew I loved medicine and I kept saying, I want to be in the business side of medicine. This was back in the, in the late 80s and people would look at me kind of funny and say, what are you talking about? Because you know, remember, medicine wasn't that, particularly pharma, wasn't that big back then. So I didn't know at the time it was pharma. I just knew I liked business and I liked medicine. So mm-hmm. make a long story short, I ended up 
getting called by a local recruiter in Seattle where I went to school and grad school and saying, hey, we got this job. It's a pharmaceutical sales rep. And I said, what is that? And um, he proceeded to tell me and I went for the interview and got the job. Back then, pharma was, again, not that well known. We honestly, the medicines were, I would call, very rudimentary in many ways. Um, And so I got my first job. And that was kind of, it started just being a love affair Um, from then on. I quickly knew I wanted to get into corporate. And then I just moved myself up the, over time, up the corporate ranks. And one thing else I would say to your listeners you know, I used to always, I kept getting promoted and promoted and promoted. And I kept saying, you know, why am I getting promoted? And, you know, other people aren't, believe me, I didn't have an Ivy League education. I went to a re, a good school, but a regional school. But I'll be candid with you. I was passing up all these Ivy Leaguers and I kept wondering, mm-hmm. why am I getting promoted? Well, a lot of it has to do with grit, hard work, being able to think innovatively, knowing how to work the corporate system and just talking to people and sort of gently nudging your ideas through and working collaboratively. If you can do that, you're going to go very far. So I kept getting promoted. I ultimately ended up becoming chief marketing officer at Novartis for the U.S. Had about $10 billion under my management. And I think I had 10,000 employees. And um, I ultimately decided, you know what, I really, because when you get a high up in those big companies, it can be very rewarding. But for some people like me, I'm very innovative. It can also can become a bit stifling. Mm -hmm. So I decided I wanted to really go be CEO. So this is my third CEO job. Um, At these levels, it's not so much, do you know the science? It's how do you tap into the expertise? Mm -hmm. Do you know how to get the brightest minds in every field, finance, business, marketing, commercial, um, R&D, clinical operations, quality, regulatory, legal, HR? Do you know how to bring that team together and then deploy it most effectively, obviously with capital as well. If you can do that well, it doesn't really matter what discipline you come from. So that's really the key at these jobs. Now, if you found a company, you will learn a whole lot. Um, I would highly recommend you find somebody who's done it before because there's a lot of mistakes you can make. I made a lot of mistakes. Fortunately, Mm -hmm. I learned from them. But if you can avoid some of the big ones, it's worth it to try to find somebody who's been there and done it. Yeah. So going back to what you're saying about, you know, climbing up, you know, you keep getting promoted, especially when somebody who just started, you know, first job, they want to do more and they want to learn more and they want also to get rewarded. As you get promoted, you do more. So you're mentioning about uh, knowing how to nudge and then bring your your ideas uh, communicate to other team member or the senior leaders, and that takes skills. What are the what are your tips for people who don't know how to do that? Yeah, that's that's actually very good because you know, um, though I like to say that, you know, I, I like to run a what I would call a low political organization because I hate politics in mm-hmm. companies. Um, but you also do have to make sure you have high EQ, and that's where I'm going to talk into this. uh, which is emotional intelligence, along with obviously IQ. You really need both. But I think that's where I was, I I did well, because I may not be the smartest person in the room, but I'm very good at the EQ side. So what does that mean? That means being able to read the room, understand where there, sometimes there might be a little bit of uh, dissension going on, knowing when to step in and when not. And then as a junior person, 
when do you speak up and when do you not? Now you're going to, you're going to put your toe in the water. You're going to learn some, but a lot of times it's best just to listen at first and figure out the personalities. Oftentimes I would just keep my mouth shut in meetings and then I would go knock on somebody's door or call them or, or uh, email them or text them in today's world and just say, Hey, can I just feed me in a little bit? What was the dynamic going on in that meeting? I didn't fully understand it. And that usually gave me an opening to say, okay, I didn't fully appreciate that. And by the way, here's a thought that I've been thinking of that you might want to consider. You you never want to force your ideas on people. You always want to make them think like they came up with it and give them food for thought. Sometimes it's better to do it offline than in a forum. Other times it's kind of knowing who to, who's not open to new ideas. Don't waste your time. Who is open to new ideas, go lobby them. Um, and you know, the other thing I see even somewhat, even in our company, some of the, uh, one of the things I tell my team and, and some of the younger people is, you know, get out there and get to know people. Don't just stay in your little box, go knock on the doors of a senior executive and say, Hey, would you mind, can I just spend 10 minutes of your time asking you kind of, uh, you know, why you said this and I mean, where, where, what are you, the priorities? Where do you think I sh- can be most effective? If you just do some of that where you're drawing people out, you're getting to know people, and while you're at it, you can talk about your ideas, you will really make an impression. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good tip. And yesterday I was having a conversation uh, with somebody who was working at UC Berkeley and talking about many of the PhD level students who are very quiet. And so the concern is like, if you're too quiet, nobody knows where you are, but they can be really smart and very thoughtful. And oftentimes it's easy to pay attention to somebody who is loud and, you know, speak up all the time in the meeting, but it doesn't, based on what you're saying, it doesn't always result in a good thing. No, no. And let me, let me talk about that because, you know, let me, um, I know that I'm a natural extrovert. And I know that people who are introverts may feel, oh my God, I just get totally overwhelmed in these meetings. Um, my senior vice president of regulatory is a is a fairly strong introvert. Um, and he's surrounded uh, by several of us that are extroverts. And I have learned, but he's very good at what he does. So as a CEO, I will call him out and say, Jack, I want to hear from you. Because he may sit there, but when he speaks, he almost always knows what he's talking about. So you don't always have to be the loudest voice in the room. And sometimes, again, it's just making sure once in a while you talk to your boss. If you show thoughtfulness to your boss and that you've thought things through and that you know what you're doing, any good boss with their salt is going to say, I'm going to listen to that gal or that guy. I'm going to listen to them. So you don't always have to be the the extrovert or the the one always making the point in a meeting. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. Yeah, so you mentioned that you've been uh, 
CEO, three, this is your third gig for, as a CEO. And you also have done a lot of leadership role in different uh, large company. What are the commonality that you've seen that is uh, challenges that you've seen in the large company and as you run the company as a CEO? And what are the differences as well? So I would say the commonality is um, understanding where and to take risk and where not to take on risk. Um, this is a high risk industry. As you all know, lots and lots of drugs never make it or technologies. And people get very passionate about it. And then they think they get blinded to the signals that say there's a problem. That doesn't matter if you're in big pharma or small pharma. It happens in both. Um, so I would say that that's very common as well. And But I would say small pharma tends to be much more risk-oriented um, than large pharma. That's, that's the one big difference, I would say. Big pharma still tends to be more risk-averse, contrary to what you would assume because they have more capital, et cetera. But what happens when you get in these big organizations, it's like, it's, in some ways, it's like the government. Your downside of making a wrong mistake is greater than your upside because you have a, you know, a pretty secure job. So, but if you make a mistake and then you, you stand out and you run the risk of getting set back in your career, if you just kind of tell the company line, don't let your head stick up, don't advocate for a new technology, your job's going to be safe because, you know, they're running on huge amounts of still embedded capital from years ago. So what you tend to do is you get people who are more risk averse in big pharma. In small pharma, you, you have to take risks. You won't survive if you don't take risks. So I would actually say way where you want to go. Sometimes it's better to even start your career in big pharma, um, maybe in the R&D lab. You can learn a lot. And then you could always move over to small pharma and you'd be incredibly valuable because you're going to bring over a lot of best practices as well. Mm -hmm. In um, So you're successful women in the field that mostly are helped by men. And also you've done this from, you know, in the 80s when those things have, I think things have moved for the better. Uh, tell us about your journey, how you thrive, and you must have navigated a lot to get where you are yeah, with a lot of the biases and prejudices. Um, it was definitely there. I will say it has definitely gotten better. Um, I will say as well, I think, you know, look, the big push right now is not even so much gender diversity as it is, you know, minority and um, you want to say LGBTQ too. I'm never quite sure if I say that right, but the other diversity, that is a big, big push. Mm -hmm. So, and I will also say, you know, I, um, it, it wasn't easy, but if you, you know, I never let it, I never let it be a front and center issue for me. I never dwelled on it. I just kind of kept pushing through. I mean, I'll give you another example. I had a boss when I was, I'd say mid-career who flat out told me I was never going to go further in my career. And I sat there and I thought, BS, I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> and so you know what I did? This was a large company I'd been at for a number of years. I said, I put my resume on the street and I said, if that's the view of me, I'm moving on I, because this guy has this impression of me and I know I can do more. And so I, I left and I went to a, I got a promotion in the, in the transition and I took off from there. 
So there's a certain amount you have to believe in yourself. And if you run into a roadblock, move around the roadblock and don't ever let that get you down. But I would also say this, don't let that be your front and center identity. I never sat back and said, oh, I'm a woman, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to get anywhere. Yes, there's some of us that would commiserate together, but I, I didn't dwell on it. And, you know, there is really, a, particularly in biopharma now, I belong to a, a number of uh, CEO forums in the Boston area and others. And I can tell you, there is a real commitment to try to get diversity into the upper ranks and on mm-hmm. the board level. And I can tell you, I'm committed to it. Now, I'm going to go on here just a bit. I know some people, and I'll just say it, some people, white people may, or men may feel like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm now I'm going to be, you know, discriminated against. Well, my message is not really, because guess what? It's been years and years and years of the shoe kind of being on the other foot. And we got to make up for lost ground. We just do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's nice to have more focus, not more focus, like the, the willingness to have more diversity. But I think if you're qualified, I think it's, it should, you know, be it. So if you're a man, it has nothing to do with that. Oh, yeah. It's Absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. And uh, again, I would just encourage, you know, I'm very passionate about the biopharma industry. I know that we've taken our knocks at times and some of it justifiably so. I think there, there is uh, a huge push to weed out some of the bad actors. Mm-hmm. That being said, if you really look, and I'm sure some of your listeners know this, if you look at what is going to happen in the next 20 years in this space, it is incredible. And it's all thanks to the genome and us being able to understand that now all the tar- targets that we're finding the new technologies, it is going to just be an incredible explosion of amazing innovation. And if you also really look at where this is all happening, it's all happening in the drug industry. And we better be careful. We don't, we don't cause a problem legislatively with, with hampering what really is going to be a golden era of really starting to cure, if not substantially slow, the progression of cancer, uh, inherited eye diseases, all these diseases that have caused tremendous amount of human suffering. We're really on the cusp of making major inroads, not just sort of holding it at bay, but curing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to be careful that we don't kill the golden goose that's about to hatch. You think that now with... you know, what happened during the COVID where, you know, look how, how fast that the vaccine can, uh, get approved. So you can see that there's, there's a way, there's a way to make things happen when there is really everybody come together. And do you think that will be a lesson learned that can apply to a lot of the new innovation? Oh, I know, uh, absolutely. It already has. I know the FDA is looking at how they can take some of those lessons learned and apply them across different drug categories. We can't just use this only for COVID. It's all the telemedicine that's gone on. It's remote monitoring of patients. It's, and then it's also how we do drug trials. So I think there absolutely, there's a lot that's happened. I mean, you know, there's mm-hmm. a, it's amazing what happens out of necessity. Right. You start to learn, okay, hold on. Our old paradigms don't have to operate that way anymore. So yes, absolutely. You're going to see changes. I think that that is an exciting time, I think, to be in healthcare because I feel 
there's a lot of new, like you were saying, there's a lot of new technology and some people can just built based on all the technology that is currently available. Yeah. That's been really oh, yeah. amazing. Very much uh, so. Yeah. So maybe if you can uh, go back to like more like about management leadership and lesson learned, what are the, as a leaders, like what, what are the your know, five lessons learned that you, you can share with us? I'm going to say as a leader, um, I've watched a lot of other leaders in the industry coming up through the ranks. And I would say that one of the most uh, leaders that I've always admired one the most is Fred Hassan, who was the CEO of Pharmacia and then of Shearing Plow. And Fred and I are still in touch to this day. And one of the things he always told me is, be kind. What do I mean by that? You can wield your brains and your muscle, but you don't have to be nasty about it. And uh, there are, I think it's gotten much better, particularly at the senior ranks. Sometimes, in fact, I had, I'll give you another case study. I had a um, vice president in the company who, um, once that person got to that level, they started throwing their title around. They started yelling at people and saying, I'm a VP. How dare you talk to me that way? I had to go talk to that person and say, you never talk that way to people. You never need to throw your weight around. Um, again, my biggest lesson is I really, look, everybody knows I'm the CEO. I don't have to tell people that. Everybody knows if you make it to a vice president, you don't have to tell people that. People, so, you know, work collaboratively, be curious, be kind. You don't have to be mean right. um, and treat people with respect. It's one of our core values. I you know, you often hear this, but it really is true. Be respectful of people as you, no matter what level you are in the organization. So I would say that's number one. Number two, as you start to manage people, or even, even um, if you are new in the organization, surround yourself with other talented people. If people are insecure, they tend to want to bring people that are yes people around them because they're insecure. If you're not insecure, you're not afraid to have people who are a lot smarter than you and in many areas know a lot more than you. Uh, again, I'll give you another case study. I just hired Dr. Jay Duker as our chief operating officer. Dr. Duker is a world-renowned key opinion leader in retinal surgery. He just stepped down from chairman of ophthalmology at Tufts after 21 years. He's published 300 papers. Let me tell you something. Jay Duker can run circles around me on a lot of areas, particularly in all of retina, the science behind it, the medicine behind it. Um, and uh, But you know what? I am so glad Jay is here because I need that level of expertise in that area. Go for it, Jay. Because it, so it's, it's, if you can, can get your ego to not have to be the smartest in the room all the time, you'll be a whole lot more successful. And then do you have other three other lessons? Or? Oh, you want three other? Okay. <laughs> I figure you have a lot. Okay, I'm just better milk it out from you. <laughs> I was about to say when you said about that, it sounded like almost like a conductor in a symphony. Oh, yeah. Like oh, what no, your I role is. I tell people all the time, I'm just the orchestra conductor. <laughs> I, I'm not playing the instruments anymore. I need everybody uh, in the team to play the instruments. All I do is I'm just coordinating everybody. Um, 
So in many ways, that's what that's what these jobs are at these levels. But I would also say this, you know, um, you know, from a leadership standpoint, uh, I'll, what I've already said, make sure you get diverse opinions. Um, you need to also make sure you call people out. And if, this is any level. It's not at the right. C-suite. This is at any level. As soon as you start to manage people, understand the strengths and weaknesses of your team players, and then make sure you pull the more reticent ones out because a lot of times they're the thoughtful ones. So you want to make sure that you're really tapping into that expertise from everyone. The other thing I would say is this, be careful when you complain. Um, Sometimes you haven't earned the right to complain or you don't have the full picture. And oftentimes it's how you do that. So that's why sometimes it's good to have a buddy that you can vent to and they can provide perspectives. Always have somebody who can say, eh, I didn't see it that way. Here's Mm why. Um, And then, you know, back to, I would say, leadership lessons. If I look back, uh, I would also say this, and this is something I tell people all the time. Always understand your downside risk. And that's whether it's on capital or on your career or on big pivotal decisions you're going to be making. I don't care even, this depends on your whole life, which even in, let's say, in, if you decide to get married or be, be, you know, a life partner, always understand your downside risk. Because at the end of the day, people tend to always want to look at the, the upside. The problem is the upside doesn't always happen. So then you want to know, okay, if that upside doesn't happen, how much is the risk on the downside? Because if the risk on the downside could put you out of business, don't do it. If the downside could be, could devastate you financially, maybe it's, I don't know, buying a house you can't afford or mm-hmm. whatever. Sometimes two people will make career decisions, meaning they will go into another company, not fully understanding, does that company have the capital to survive? Um, like I made some career decisions in retrospect, I shouldn't have ever taken. Make sure you assess your downside risk. If the company doesn't survive, what are the odds it could fail? And if it doesn't survive, what happens? That's really interesting. I think you're the first one who talked about like make sure you understand what the downside. And I thought that was something that yeah. um I mean, I think people maybe think about it, but not as like, you know, put it as a framework. I think that's yeah. a great framework. I know you right. mentioned about there's a lot of interest in bringing diversity, not as much about just gender. How do you as a leader try to bring that diversity into your leadership uh, and also as a, not just a middle management, right? But it's also the higher. Well, what I would say in terms of bringing more diversity, and I just tell my team and my head of HR that I'm, I've got certain positions. I've said, I'm not going to, I'm just not going to hire anybody unless it's diverse. I'm just not. So it's putting those really, really, sometimes you just have to do that. Now, I know technically you could say, well, you shouldn't do that. The problem is if you don't really insist that those things are being managed, you're going to end up, oh, it's just too easy to revert to what, what is easy to get out there in the marketplace. So you have to make sure you do that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, that really helps. And I, I thought it was interesting you were saying about the diversity now is more like on the, not so much as a gender, especially in the uh, the biotech space. And I want to get your thought, which is probably this off topic. I just hear on the news that 
there are more women who graduated from college in this country compared to boys or men at that stage, I guess. And what do you think as a women or as a society, how make sure that I think there's a dangers, right? When there's one gender is stronger than the other. I don't know. I just think that there must be something that can disrupt the society if we keep it that way. Well, yeah, well, you're, you're getting into some, you know, I will say that I don't think it's good. I think we need to really, in this now I'm going to say, you know, on the other other side of things, which is I don't want to certainly come across like it's just, you know, we're not going to always look at men or people who are Caucasian like myself. You have to. It's it's everybody. The problem is, and let me just reiterate, too many times it's been only, in some cases, white men. And that's where I think we need to just make sure we have a very open mind. But to that point about uh, men and women in particular, I do think that we've got to make sure that I'm personally... Uh, I'm not one to say we that that men somehow should be in any way minimized. I think we need every voice around this table. I do worry that you got too many women now graduating from college and men are throwing the talent. I think we need to understand what is behind that. Um, that you're getting into a whole socio-political right. here. So I'm probably not the best person to go down into that that level, but I want to reiterate. It's every voice needs to be heard um, with the right skills. And I would encourage that that men and women and people of color, everybody tries to get the education that they want. And by the way, not everybody's cut out for college. Let's be clear about this. Sometimes call, you can, thankfully now, I think particularly San Francisco is the hotbed for this. You know, there's a lot of um, up and coming tech companies. You don't have to have a college degree. Sometimes it's just making sure, you know, you know, you might be a brilliant graphic design artist or a brilliant coder or data analytics. We need data analytics. You don't have to have a full college degree for that. Mm -hmm. So I think we've got to get much broader about how we drive innovation through the educational system. Yeah. So cool. I know that we are running out of time. I want to throw in one fun question. Um, Well, not combination of fun and uh, serious. You mentioned about get mentor and, you know, what, I guess my, like, what would you consider as a good mentor? And also next question is like, if you have a choice of who you want to have a dinner with, who would be that person? (laughs) I get asked that question fairly often. Here's what I would say on the mentoring side. What you don't want to do is go up to somebody you hardly know and say, will you be my mentor? Um, I've had that. It puts people in a very awkward situation. Um, most of us are extremely busy if, if, at any kind of a senior level. I would say this, you, even if it's just one person, one love, maybe it's a professor, maybe it's somebody who's a manager. Maybe it's just like when you get your first job or, or, or maybe you're going out to found your company and you ran into a VC person, just say to them, Hey, could I, call you up for 20 minutes and just pick your brain on a couple topics. That's the way you start. You mm-hmm. never want to kind of say, I want you to be my mentor because that puts such a heavy burden on somebody. You want to just, just start to, there's no secret to it. One of the things I did is that I always made sure I just stayed in touch with people. So I've, over the years, I've just developed a really big network because I just stay in touch with people. 
send them a quick note. Hey, how are you doing? You know, I remember so fondly the time we worked together, would love to just stay connected. So sometimes it's just take it one step at a time. That's all that's needed. And if I could have dinner with anybody, it'd be Joe, it would be President Joe Biden. Oh, why? Because he's the most powerful man in the world. And this has got nothing to do with political persuasion. It's being able to talk to the, the president of the United States. What an awesome job. Um, and then, of course, I would like to just get his thoughts a little bit on and, and say a little bit about where innovation is going in the economy, because it's really incredible. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, I hope you get to have the chance to have dinner with Joe Biden. I think that would be really awesome. <laughs> Maybe if we can somehow help you get that dinner with Joe Biden, that would be amazing. (laughs) So that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Christine. Thank you. I definitely learned a lot from our conversation. Great. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.